Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In essay one of The Genealogy of Morals, Friedrich Nietzsche spends three chapters discussing the development of this figure and a mode of valuation that he calls the priest. And this could be single individuals, this can be an entire people, as he says the, the Jews are, it can be a caste, so it can be something in between, a, a sort of class emerging within the aristocracy. And it's very important to take into account the fact that the priest is a third figure and a third form of valuation different and distinct from the aristocratic noble the strong mode of valuation of good versus bad and the later development of herd morality and the transvaluation of values that culminates in good versus evil. The priest plays a role in that, but there's also something different going on. So it's very important not just to turn everything into binaries as people are often want to do with Nietzsche and recognize the complexity of the picture that he's drawing. So the priest is a type who emerges from the noble class. They don't emerge from the underclass, the commoners who are being oppressed and told that they're bad, you know, by the nobles. Instead, the priest is something new that's emerging within this aristocracy. And he talks about the issue of superiority of soul. And he says to this rule that he's set out before, that a concept denoting political superiority always resolves itself into a concept denoting superiority of soul, it is not necessarily an exception when the highest caste is at the same time the priestly caste and therefore emphasizes in its total description of itself a predicate that calls to mind its priestly function. We'll talk about that predicate in a moment. Predicate being a judgment, a value term in this case. So it could be that it is the highest caste within the society. And we might think about, for example, the development in India where the Brahmins are higher than the Kshatriya, who are the warriors and rulers and, and stuff like that. But the key thing here is that there is a differentiation within the aristocracy. A little bit later in chapter seven, he tells you the priestly mode branches off from the knightly aristocratic and then can develop into its opposite. And he says, this is particularly likely when the priestly caste and the warrior caste are in jealous opposition to one another and are unwilling to come to terms. There's a conflict, not only of peoples, but of, you might say, ways of looking at the world and at oneself and what one's doing. So there's a lot of different ways in which this can develop. You can have a priestly caste that's over the aristocratic class, right? You can have a priestly class sort of going to, to battle, but not, you know, using the weapons of war, but other weapons with this noble class. There's a lot of different possibilities and one society could actually contain multiple cases of that. So what is this priestly mode of valuation? Nietzsche tells us that this priestly mode brings in some new values. 
He says, pure and impure confront one another. For the first time as designations of station, and here too there evolves a good and a bad, in a sense, no longer referring to station. So something is getting shaken loose. Something is happening. This is part of human, you could call it productivity with ideas, the fact that we are an animal that is not entirely determined or conditioned in the ways that other animals are. This is part of human development, according to Nietzsche. So this pure versus impure as a new way of looking at good versus bad. A person could be from the higher class, but still be impure and therefore bad in this priestly mode of valuation. So he goes on and he says, at first we should be warned against taking these too broadly or symbolically. All the concepts of ancient people were at first incredibly uncouth, coarse, external, and he goes on, and altogether unsymbolical. So what's the opposite of symbolic? Literal, right? Literally pure. The pure one, he says, is from the beginning merely a man who washes himself, who forbids himself certain foods that produce skin ailments, who does not sleep with the dirty women of the lower strata, who has an aversion to blood. No more, hardly more. Now, you know, is Nietzsche getting this from some history that he's discovered? No, this is his introjection of it, but it's a plausible story, right? So he says, on the other hand, it's clear from the whole nature of an essentially priestly aristocracy why antithetical valuations could soon become dangerously deepened, sharpened, and internalized. So at first, the distinction is very straightforward. Do these things, don't do these things, don't get leprosy, for example. If you've got this sort of skin ailment, which could be leprosy or something else, stay away from everybody else. We have to purify you in certain ways. Don't have sex except under these circumstances. But then the distinction can be elaborated. It can be developed. And here's where the priestly caste or figure becomes something very interesting and new on the scene. He tells us there is from the first something unhealthy in these priestly aristocracies and in the habits ruling them, which turn them away from action and alternate between brooding and emotional explosions, habits which seem to have as their almost invariable consequence that intestinal morbidity, right? Something wrong with your guts, quite frankly, and neurasthenia, not perceiving things, which afflicted priests at all times. But, and then here's where it gets more complex, as to that which they themselves devised as a remedy, must one not assert that it has ultimately proved itself a hundred times more dangerous in its effects than the sickness it was supposed to cure. So the priests act as, you could say, physicians, physicians not only of the body, but the soul, and they develop more and more cures, which then provoke other problems, and people can come to them for help, but oftentimes they leave with just as many new problems as they came in with. And he says, Says, mankind is still ill with the effects of this priestly naivety in medicine. Think, for example, of certain forms of diet, of fasting, of sexual continence, of flight into the wilderness. And he brings up a popular cure at the time, which was actually an American guy uh, preaching that. And he says, add to these the entire anti-sensualistic metaphysics of the priests that makes people indolent and over-refined, their auto-hypnosis, right? And then finally, the only too comprehensible satiety with this, together with the radical cure for it, nothingness or God. The desire for union mystico with God is the desire of the Buddhist for nothingness, nirvana, no more. And then he says, with the priest, because of this, everything becomes more dangerous. 
Now, the warriors are dangerous, right? I mean, they might kill you, they might enslave you, but they're dangerous in a very different way than the priest is. The priest is dangerous to himself, to, to other people, and can work on a different plane than that of the warriors, right? He goes on and he says, for these priests, everything becomes more dangerous. You have dangers you have to avoid so you can remain pure. Cures and remedies, but also arrogance, revenge, acuteness, prolificacy, love, lust to rule, virtue, disease. And then he says something quite uh, interesting here that I think is very important to take into account. Is Nietzsche condemning the priests? No. Nietzsche is saying this is something that happened and this actually led to human beings becoming the interesting animal. Before that, I mean, they were doing stuff that we write stories about, conquering places. People would come in and assert themselves as the powerful jockey with each other for prestige and position, get into blood feuds with each other, oppress the common people. But it's just the same damn thing over and over and over again. One place, another place, another place. It's the priests and the religion that they bring, which makes human beings more complex, which makes them more interesting, not only from a anthropological point of view, but from a moral point of view as well. So he calls this the soil of an essentially dangerous form of human existence, the priestly form. And it's only there that man became an interesting animal. Only here did the human soul in a higher sense acquire depth, acquire depth, but also become evil. And these are the two basic respects in which man has hitherto been superior to other beasts. Being able to comprehend oneself, not only as just bad and not fitting well into the social hierarchy or being weak as opposed to the strong, but evil and being able to diagnose evil in others, right? So that is part of what makes us the interesting animal. In chapter seven and chapter eight, he talks about impotence. And he says that the priest is the most evil enemy. Why? Because they are the most impotent. It's because of their impotence that in them hatred grows to monstrous and uncanny proportions to the most spiritual and poisonous kind of hatred. They can't win on the same plane as the warriors, right? So they find a new game. They change the rules. They bring in new concepts where they can be the winners. That's kind of a sour grapes thing, but it's not just sour grapes. It's developing an entirely new set of approaches to things that are motivated also by a hatred that can last and last and last, that can deepen, that can turn into different permutations. They're aiming at what Nietzsche calls spiritual revenge, and they are motivated by a kind of what he calls resentment. And I should point out that Nietzsche thinks that resentment is not just something for the lower classes, not just something for the priest. People can feel resentment, the nobles feel it, but then they let it go whereas the priest holds on to it and sharpens it. So he tells us that human history, once again, going back to the interesting animal, would be altogether too stupid a thing without the spirit that the impotent have introduced to it. And he, here he gets into a long discussion spanning this chapter and uh, bleeding over into chapter eight about the Jews. And it's, it's, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly what we ought to make of this, because if you do know anything, just reading the Bible, for example, it's clear that the Jews were not one single people always on the same page ruled by the priests or anything like that. There's actually a lot of jockeying between the priests and the kings and various prophets and problems within the priesthood and, you know, foreign relations with other nations. And But you, you can say that within, you know, Judaism, there are some important traits that are being developed that 
help you see what Nietzsche is trying to get at here. I suspect that if Nietzsche were looking at Chinese history and had enough background in it, he probably would have talked about the Confucians in a similar way himself. Now, be that as it may, he says that um, here, we, all that has been done against on earth against the noble, the powerful, the masters, the rulers, fades into nothing compared with what the Jews have done against them, that priestly people who, in opposing their enemies and conquerors, were ultimately satisfied with nothing less than a radical revaluation of their enemies' value, that is to say, an act of the most spiritual revenge. And, and again, it's, it, if you think about the biblical literature, it's a little hard to see exactly what Nietzsche's aiming at, because there is this, like, saying, ah, you know, the, the Moabites, they're a bunch of bad people, and the Assyrians come in, and sort of the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and they're all bad people too. But Israel and Judea are doing their own similar things and conquering other places. And Cyrus the Great is acclaimed as, you know, the anointed of God. So I, you got to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt here and try to see what he's trying to talk about. Now, he, he then goes and brings up Christianity. And before that, though, he says that there is this inversion of the aristocratic value equation hanging on to this inversion with their teeth, the teeth of the most abysmal hatred, saying the wretched alone are the good, the poor, impotent, lowly alone are the good, the suffering, deprived, sick, ugly alone are pious, alone are blessed by God. Blessedness is for them alone. And it's difficult to, again, to identify this in historical forms of Judaism. But, you know, you could say, well, this is kind of a type that he's, he's after. The real meat, I would say, in this is in chapter 8, where, he's, where he switches to talking about Christianity, which certainly for Europe and really across the world has a influence in spreading a priestly mode of evaluation, according to Nietzsche's standards, that dwarfs that of Judaism, right? Because Christianity effectively takes over the West, right? So he says that, what about Christianity? It's, it's usually portrayed as the opposite of Judaism, as love in place of hatred. And he says, no, no, this Jesus of Nazareth, this incarnate gospel of love, the Redeemer who brought blessedness and victory to the poor, was he not the seduction in its most uncanny and irresistible form, a seduction and bypath to these Jewish values and new ideas? Did not Israel attain the ultimate goal of its sublime vengefulness through the bypath of this redeemer, this ostensible opponent and disintegrator of Israel? Isn't, isn't this really just another kind of priestly reevaluation of things, much more successful, much more seductive, more complex? That's Nietzsche's point in turning to this historical thing. The other thing that we do have to point out is that the priests play an important role in what he's going to call the slave revolt in morality, but they are not just like imposing it on the common people. As a matter of fact, there's kind of a dialectic going on between them, right? And again, historically, since Nietzsche says we, we really need to attend to history, it's not really that simple. Is that, you know, the priests are often getting into a lot of conflict with the common people over these sorts of things. So we really do have to see it as a third kind of valuation within this complex dynamic that, that Nietzsche is laying out. But this is very important. The priests later on in the essay, in the third 
essay, right, are going to be connected with the philosophers and even the people of science, the questers for truth and the ascetic ideal. This is where that's first coming in to the work and establishing, as we said, something new. Nietzsche doesn't take a stance on whether this is really fundamentally good or bad. He's saying, here's what I think happened and here's how these developments play out. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.